want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark to the uh, an account that is very similar to the one that Ron has read for us this morning. Gospel of Mark chapter 8. Part 3 in our series on hope for troubled times. In my own defense, in regards to the slideshow, I didn't stand around with my hands on my hips all day long, <laughs> as the pictures appear to indicate, okay, just for the record, and I never did fall asleep, I don't know where they got that picture. So, <clears throat> I went to a Warren Hills football game on Friday night, it wasn't pretty, it was not pretty. We get beat pretty bad, all right, who was there, was anybody there? That's what I mean. No one was there. Uh, when teams lose, fans get mad at who? The coach, okay? Just like in church, when things go wrong, he gets the blame, okay? Same with the football team, all right? So I went to this game, and afterwards, I hear this guy kind of going off on the uh, coaches and on the team as they're leaving the field, the way it sounded to me from the angle I was sitting at. And... It was getting rather intense. One of the coaches comes over to the fence uh, in an effort to calm the guy down. And a guy that I know, I won't use his last name, uh, his name is Dave. Um, you all don't, he doesn't attend our church. Dave L., okay, for the topic of discussion here. So Dave L. is kind of working over towards this guy who's getting rather intense. He's telling him he needs to back off. Well, this guy turned around and started to move towards Dave L., and Dave L. wasn't as big as this guy. So Dave L. comes running up in the stands, and I was at the game with Dan Slack. So Dave L. jumps up into the stands and says, Dan Slack. They went to school together, so he knew the routine. <laughs> this, you should have been there. YouTube, blue ribbon quality stuff. Danny comes running down the stands, jumps down off the stands, goes over to where this guy is getting in the face of this coach. And Danny Slack, it was great. Pam, I don't know if Pam saw this or not, he went like within three inches of his face and told the guy that he felt that what he was saying to the coach was inappropriate and needed to stop. The guy standing beside me up in the stand still, his name is Ben Oberly. Okay, Ben Oberly was a two-time state champion, a very tough man. He looks at me and quietly says this. He says, apparently Dave L. is the bravest man in this stadium. <laughs> and I said, parenthetically, with Dan Slack, standing behind him. And I thought of that in relationship to our discussion about faith and the tendency to become weak and to lack courage in the face of struggles that we all inevitably face in our Christian experience. And my conclusion from Scripture is this. We should be the bravest people on planet Earth because of who stands with us, beside us, in front of us, and behind us. Dave L. was uh, very brave with Dan Slack at his side, as I would have been too. We have every reason in the current climate of despair and gloom and darkness to be the bravest people on the planet. And yet we often are not. And I want to ask the question this morning, why is it that we who should be the bravest often are the weakest or most prone to complain? 
most prone to fear when circumstances arise on the screen of our life that take us beyond our individual measurable capacities. Why is it that we tend to experience a failure of faith, a lack of braveness, when braveness is required, when braveness honors God, exalts God, magnifies God? Why is it that we fall weak? Why is it that I do? The account that we're going to look at this morning is the only miracle that is listed in all four of the Gospels. It's the account of the feeding of the 5,000. There's another miracle of feeding with the 4,000. That's the one I want us to focus on this morning because I am captured by the fact that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 appears in every Gospel and that the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 appears in two Gospels, and it is a virtual, exact parallel to the feeding of the five. And I start thinking to myself, Lord, if you you did that and had it recorded in every Gospel, and then you did it again and put it in 50% of the Gospels, the question that starts to come up is, why? What is taught in the account of Jesus creating food for multitudes that is vital to Christian courage and braveness? What in that story touches or hits at a, 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 a potential towards weakness and failure that we as God children experience? What is it in this account? I want to work through the account and then I want to just draw three lessons or applications from it that we can apply to our life. The setting of this story, and to get the setting, I have to go back to Matthew chapter 16 and just listen as I read these few verses from Matthew 16. Verses 29 through 31. And as the pastor looks, he realizes that he wrote down the wrong chapter. This is not vision related, okay? Okay, verse 29 of chapter 15. My Bible numbers changed on my way to the, to the uh, church building today. Okay, verse 29. Now listen, this is the setting in which the feeding of the 4,000 occurs, second occurrence of the feeding miracle. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountain and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They laid them at his feet and he healed them. What I want you to notice about the miracles is this. They are not the kind of miracles that you see on TV programs about preachers who allegedly heal people. They're bona fide, organic Miracles of God in the lives of people who have significant, visible, acknowledgeable, measurable needs. To them, he does certain things. Notice what it says. He healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Okay, that's the setting in which this occurs. Because if you go on in the text, you find that you come to the feeding of the 4,000 immediately in the text in Matthew. Go back then with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. So the setting, miraculous miracles, powerful miracles. And here's the question I have for you. If you were in that setting, watching miracle after miracle after miracle, watching unbelievable after unbelievable after unbelievable, how would you feel? How would you feel about God Can I say this? If we saw this morning a 
bona fide, measurable healing of God in someone's life today, your day tomorrow would be a better day. That's what you're thinking, right? If I saw the hand of God change someone's life physically in time, I would become a believer. I would have greater faith. I would be more brave in the face of conflict and suffering and anxiety. Why does Jesus do these miracles? It becomes evident as you read through the Gospels that He does miracles to build the faith of His children, to encourage them to be brave in a fallen world, to honor and to love God with all their heart and to give Him all the glory that He deserves. That's the setting of this miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. Faith, you would think, would be profoundly strong. People would be deeply encouraged, ready to take on life for the glory of God. But attention arises in the account. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, and I just love the way He does this, He acknowledges a problem is present and He calls His disciples in for a conference. He calls them and He says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with Me three days. And I think the implication of that is their food supply that they brought to be with Me is beginning to run out. And as a result, they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. So, they understand what Jesus is implying. We're going to feed these people. And the disciples are thinking to themselves, oh no, we're not. Oh no, we're not. How do you know that their answer is that? Look at verse 4. His disciples answered, and it's fascinating. He, did he ask them a question? Did he ask a question? No, he just made an observation. But they know the heart of Christ. They know that when it says he is experiencing compassion, he's going to do something about it. He's not just part of the corporate sigh on Sunday morning that does nothing. His compassion is measurable. It is active. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone find enough bread to feed them? Here's the tension. Jesus looks at a multitude and says, I want to feed them. Their sorrow is breaking my heart. I feel compassion. The disciples' response in the midst of this tension is, Jesus, you need to be realistic. You need to be realistic. We don't have enough food here, and there is enough food to be purchased here, so it would obviously best to send them away. Jesus doesn't take no from His disciples. If you haven't learned that yet, powerful lesson to get down in your Christian experience. You don't say no to God. Verse 5, How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. And they got to be thinking, Oh no, not again. Not again. Jesus asked. They replied, Seven. Now what are they saying? Oh, well, we have seven. We only have seven. There's two ways to say this. And I think we can anticipate very clearly from their despair and call to send these people home that they're looking at the seven as if it's nothing in comparison to the profound need that is present. And Jesus says, oh, rats, I thought we had more than that. And said, we'll just send them home. No? No? If you know your Bible, Jesus told the crowds to sit down on the ground when he had taken the seven loaves, he gave thanks to the one who provides it. He broke them and gave it to the disciples and gave it to the disciples and gave it to the disciples and gave it to the disciples. And they took it to the people 
and set it before them and set it before them and set it before them. They also had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and told the disciples to distribute them, to distribute them, to distribute them. Because the seven became enough in the hands of the Creator to drive out all fear and to build courageous, brave faith in the heart of those that followed Christ. And it's the second time He's doing the same miracle again. And this is the question because of my mind. Why? Why? And I think the answer very simply is that we tend to have very weak, forgetful faith. Jesus says to them, how many do you have? I don't think Jesus was looking for information. I don't think Jesus, when he heard the number, was disappointed that, oh, you know what, that really isn't enough. He wasn't asking them for information. He was asking for them to clarify the limit of their resources. He wanted them to admit, to confess, to say, we only have seven. Folks, there is power when you come to God saying, God, for the task that you have called me to, I do not have enough. And Jesus forces His disciples into a corner where they have to confess that they must trust Him, that their resources are in fact limited, and that they are experiencing in this setting a significant failure of faith. The resolve to the tension. So you have a setting, a tension in the story arises, Jesus says, I want to feed them. The disciples say, be realistic. That's the the tension. That's the bone of contention in the text. The magnitude of the need is enormous in the eyes of the disciples. He asks how many loaves they have. They realize that it's not enough. Now it is in the hands of Christ. He says, tell the people to sit down. The resolve is in the end of verse 8. Afterward, and you just got to love this, okay? We have seven. That's not enough. Afterward, the disciples picked up the seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. You have to love that. We have seven pieces of bread. We fed 4,000 people. We have seven basketfuls left over. My question is this. Who was that for? Who was that for? If you go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, which is the right chapter, and you watch what Jesus says to them in just a few verses. Here's what he says to his disciples. He says, O you of puny faith. O ye of little faith. And what's the quote? Why did you doubt me? Think back to the 5,000. Why did you doubt me? Now, I think we can argue on behalf of the disciples that their doubt seems to be justifiable and right. But what we as believers need to remember is that the limit of our resources... The limit of our resource is not the measure of God's resources. We often tend to try to live in terms of the measure of our resources. What we think we can handle. What we think we can do. What we think we can give. God wants us to look at His resources and not limit them based on what we see. That's walking by sight. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. God wants you to open up your account statement on your IRA and say, Lord, I trust that by your grace, this will be enough. That you will meet my needs in the face of job loss. That you will stand up and meet my needs through your people and by your grace. 
We have such a tendency to fail in regard to braveness and faith. God wants us to be people of faith. So, that's the story. Seven basketfuls is the resolve. Then, in verse 11, there is an encounter. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. And it just put this in context. They come to test Him. They ask Him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply. The idea is He is becoming irritated, justifiably aggravated with the persistent pursuit of the Pharisees who simply want Him to show Him a sign. Do another miracle. Do another miracle. And Jesus' frustration is expressed in the Word. He bristles at them, is the idea of the Word. He sighs with frustration and aggravation. This, by the way, is like the fourth time that your son asked you to use the card that night. Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth. No sign will be given to it. Go to the Gospel of Matthew. Here's what it says. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Go to another Gospel. You find that explained further. As Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be. You say to yourself, why is Jesus saying that to them? Why doesn't He give them more evidences of who He is? Because they have consistently and persistently rejected the evidence that they had received. They're struggling with something in their heart that is called hard-heartedness or significant and serious doubt about the identity of Jesus. Now, the reason I turn to this is when you go into verse, verse 13, it says, Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. And follow this now. This is beautiful. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf, okay? Another tension arises. They're going on a journey. The disciples are looking at each other saying, Dude, did you bring the bread? They said, I forgot the bread. How much do we have? We got one loaf. And what do they do? They start freaking out. Another failure of faith, a failure of courage, a weakening of braveness. Why? Because what are they doing? Looking at the limit of their resources. And notice what he says next. I, just, I, I love this. Be careful, Jesus said. So here it is, a flashing warning. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Watch out. Okay, there is implied here a clear Warning that is given to the disciples. And here's the question I have for you this morning. What is the yeast of the Pharisees? Okay, if you've ever made bread, you probably have a little bit of an understanding of what this is about. If you take a lump of dough and you put a pinch of yeast into a small part of that lump of dough, let it sit overnight, what happens? That yeast will permeate that entire loaf, of, uh, that entire piece of dough and transform it into a loaf. Okay, that, the idea here is this influence of the Pharisees is this, or the yeast of the Pharisees, I'm sorry, is an influence, a perspective that they bring in relationship to Jesus Christ. What is the consistent attitude of the, of the Pharisees toward Jesus? Here's what it is. Unbelief. 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 Now, here's the way that I'll state it to you, and I have this in your notes. The leaven or the influence of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees, is doubt about Jesus that is rooted in self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. Okay? They were independent people who didn't need God. They were self-sufficient and they were, by definition, self-righteous. That is the teaching of the Pharisees. The result of their self-sufficiency and self-righteousness leads to a persistent unbelief in the face of evidence. 
That's the struggle that they had. A persistent unbelief when there was every reason to believe. And Jesus looks at His disciples and says, you guys be careful that you don't fall into the trap of a persistent pattern of unbelief. Because that is the influence of a God-belittling and God-rejecting heart. And it will kill braveness in those who should be very brave. Verse 16, they respond. They discussed this with each other and said, is it because we have no bread? Meaning, is He hammering us because we forgot to bring bread? Verse 17, and I just love the way Jesus does this. Aware of their discussion. He doesn't hear them, but He knows they're talking and He knows the content of their discussion. Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hard? And if you go back in, uh, in, in Matthew, here's the way it says it to them. O ye of little faith, you who should have great faith because you have been privy to seeing the miracles of God. Look at the context. They should be people of great faith, but are experiencing a failure of faith. What Jesus is correcting in His disciples, and I believe what He wants to confront in our hearts, is a persistent tendency towards unbelief. He wants us to be people who trust Him. And the way that He draws the disciples back to trust is to remind them of the miracles that He has done for them. Verses 17-18 through 18 of this chapter. And this I think is fascinating. Do you have eyes, but fail to see? And ears, but fail to hear. And don't you remember? Now what is he going to do? Here's what he's going to do. He's going to go back to the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, which is incredibly close proximity, but is forgotten. You say, why do they say we only have one loaf? Because they think one loaf isn't enough. And Jesus is looking at them saying, come on, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. That what I have put into your hands is not enough? And then he goes into asking. And this is the only miracle that I am conscious of in the Gospels. thought through this this morning. It's the only miracle where I can remember Jesus repeating an experience and the lesson that it was meant to teach them. Notice how he does it. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? He knows they're going to remember because they each had one. And they look at him, they have to say it. Okay, oh, we got this one loaf, we're afraid it's not enough. How many loaves did you have when I fed the 5,000? Twelve. Okay, now I want, to say, I want to say this real quickly. The twelve, I think that number connects back to all kinds of pictures in Scripture, particularly to a picture of the people of God, namely the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles who are representative of every New Testament believer, and they are both mentioned in Revelation chapter 4 with the 24 elders, the twelve and the twelve. Why does he ask about the twelve, the feeding of the five thousand? Why does he want them to say the word? Because he wants them to confess that God provides for his people all the time. That's what he wants them to know. And then he goes into the next miracle. And when I broke, and it's like, it's like one of those leading to, and, and when I did this, when I said that, he says, and when I broke the loaves, the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls did you pick up? They answered, seven which is the number that you unmistakably study through Scripture as the number of perfect supply of completion, the perfections of the Spirit of God, sevenfold Spirit of God. It's seven days, the complete week. Go to the New Testament, the seven golden lampstands, the presence of God in the lives of His people. What's the thrust? The thrust is that it indicates completion. These 
two statements point to or are a picture of the superabundance of God's provision for His children. He's saying, I always provide for my people in a way that is perfect. That's what those two miracles speak. And then He says this to the disciples. He said to them, do you still not understand? Disciples, do you still not get it? That your weak faith in light of my presence in your life, is unjustifiable. Is an offense and an affront to the goodness and faithfulness of God. And folks, look, we can justify all kinds of doubt and fear and lack of braveness in our lives based upon our circumstances, but I cannot justify it when I look at the goodness and greatness of God. And what this text, I believe, does is it calls us to be brave. Why? Okay, what are the lessons that then emerge out of this text? And I just want to give you three. Number one is this. God will allow you as His child to face troubling circumstances. He will allow you to face troubling circumstances so that in them He can teach you that He is reliable and trustworthy. You go to John chapter 6, it becomes clear that Jesus led His disciples into the context of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. How many loaves do you have? We have this much. It's not enough. You feed them. That's what He says to them. You guys feed them. He puts the burden on them. What does He want them to do? To cry out to God and say, God, we can't. We need Your help. God led them, in the, them into those circumstances in the path of obedience. They are circumstances that He sovereignly and exhaustively controls. He put this in the lap of the disciples. So, God allows His children to face troubling circumstances. God will, by His grace and for His purposes, allow your and my world to shake so that I stop trusting in weak things. Second lesson is this. God's kind purpose in our troubles is to build our faith. His kind purpose in our troubles is to build our faith. He sees the weak faith in the life of His disciples and He is challenging them to greater, braver, more significant, magnificent faith that honors Him and that brings delight into His children. Here's the question I ask after reading the account of the feeding of the four and five thousand. The question I ask is this. How did the disciples feel? after that miracle? And I have two answers. One is shame. One is shame, especially on the feeding of the 4,000 because they've already been there. God, forgive me for doubting you. Jesus, forgive me for not believing that you would come through as they stand there with the 12 baskets and the 7 baskets. And I just, I just would love to know what he said to them, how he looked at them, and how he challenged them to greater faith. But I also think of them walking away from that circumstance. I think of the disciples' hearts lifted and encouraged. Jesus is our man. He's on our side. We're with him. We're with him. Before the feeding, they're embarrassed, they're you know, in the ancient, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, to not provide a meal for people would be the most humiliating thing that could ever happen. Hey, we just pick up the phone and call and get pizza. Right? Amen? In the ancient world, that wasn't an option. 
their responses to Jesus are genuine. Where are we going to get enough food to feed these people? It's not possible. And Jesus, I think Jesus looks at him and says, okay, what's not possible now? Okay. What can I do? What are you afraid of? What's bothering you? What's your problem? What is the circumstance that is driving you over the edge emotionally and causing you to experience a lack of braveness when you should be the bravest person on planet Earth? Think of the disciples leaving the miracle, having experienced and seen the grace of God miraculously and powerfully revealed and how encouraged their hearts must have been. And yet weeks later, I find them coming to Jesus saying, you know, you're allowed to send the people away because we don't have enough food for them. And you're thinking to yourself, wait, this is the second time we've been through this. You would think that they would come to Jesus and say, uh, Jesus, do you, do you remember the last time we had 5,000 we couldn't feed them and you kind of did that thing that you do? And Do they come into It's not even in their mind. It's not, not true for us. Think of the person that you think can't come to Christ because of their lifestyle and how they live and you would love to see them come to Christ. It may be a mate, it may be your child who is off in sin. You want to see him come to Christ and you're experiencing a failure of faith. You know why? Because you're forgetting that God rescued you from your pit of despair. If he did it before, he can do it again. A failure of faith, a lack of braveness in regard to the work of God is not justifiable for his children. I think that's the primary lesson that he's teaching here. That God's purpose in trouble is to build our faith. I've prayed this recently. God, if you need to shake the country that I live in to get my attention, shake it. Shake it. I don't want that to happen. But if it is what I need in order that I would walk a life of faith that honors God, then my heart cry to God should be, God, then so be it. Do that. Do that in my life so that we will learn what it is to honor and love and glorify you by being the bravest people on planet Earth. You know, in the context of this chapter, the disciples are just about to face the greatest tragedy in their experience. You go to Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. Jesus says to His disciples, Hey, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Peter says, We say, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are God's anointed and appointed one. You are the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. You are the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God. This is Peter. What is he experiencing? He just saw the feeding of the 4,000. He's been challenged to greater faith. And when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to be killed, Peter's like, I'll be there. I will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus. I'll be faithful to the end. And when they get to Jerusalem, what happens? Peter experiences another failure of faith. And Jesus lovingly comes to him on the shores of Galilee and restores his faith and calls him back into service for his kingdom. My friends, this morning, God allows troubles to come into our lives to build and grow our faith. This work of faith, number three, and this is my conclusion, this work of faith building is a lifelong process that produces the deepest and profoundest joy in the heart of God's children. When you are living bravely, conscious of the power and work of God, your life will never be the same. You will experience great joy. You'll be like David L. saying, dance like, come here. And you'll walk over and confront any situation with great faith. You know why? Because as you face your circumstances, you're going to go to Jesus first. You're going to say, Jesus, over here. I got something I can't handle. 
and my tendency is to doubt and to believe that it's not going to work out in my marriage. My tendency is to doubt and fear that my kid's going to walk away from God. My tendency is to doubt and fear that when I go to work tomorrow, I'm getting the pink slip. All of the fears that run through the mind and capture and captivate the heart of God's children and make us lack braveness when we should be the bravest people on the planet. Not for us. Not so we can have a better life. Don't domesticate this truth. But so that God can be glorified in the life of His children. He deserves all the glory. He allows us to go into these circumstances so that we will come out of them with praise and honor for Him. Perhaps this morning, God is shaking your world to show you that you need to trust His provision in Jesus. Perhaps you've never trusted Christ. You're trusting in your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance. You're a uniquely gifted individual. You're good at what you do at work. You earn a good paycheck, but you've never trusted Christ. You're a religious person. You're a good dad. You're a good mom. You're a good child. But you've never trusted Christ. This morning, I believe God wants to shake your world and bring you humbly to the foot of the cross where you experience and express to Him great, deep faith that brings redemption and forgiveness from His hand in your life. He wants to forgive you and save you through the shed blood of His Son that we have sung about, I believe, so gloriously this morning. I also believe that the Lord has given us to us His table, the communion table, as a place where we can be reminded over and over and over and over again of God's past acts of kindness that we tend to forget, of how He has so wonderfully provided for His church, for His people that He loves, who are symbolized in the seven perfect supply and the twelve for God's people. In that picture, we come to the Lord's table this morning expressing deep appreciation to God for the work of Christ in our lives. Communion is to remind us of what we tend to forget, the centrality, the significance, the importance of the cross of Christ who rose and conquered the grave to forgive us of our sin. Folks, the greatest motivation for deep, brave faith is the resurrection of Christ. He rose as we sung and conquered the grave. You get someone in your life that can handle that, you're going to be doing just fine. You're going to be doing just fine. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father.